I want to pose a question to you this morning. What makes us ashamed to share the gospel? Just think about that question for a minute. Can you think of a time or a reason you have been ashamed of the gospel? Can you think of something that has stopped you from sharing the gospel? Now, when we stop to think about it, there's several reasons that can make us shrink away from sharing the gospel with, with others. I'm sure you can name time after time that, that you have failed to share the gospel. I thought of many times as I was preparing. But let's look at a few things that can keep us from sharing the gospel, that can make us ashamed to share the gospel. Maybe your mind goes to your life before Christ. You know that your friends have seen you sin. You know that your family has seen you sin. And you think that they would never believe the gospel coming from you because they know how you are. They know how you used to live. They might call you a hypocrite. They, they may reject Christ because of you. So in those times, we refrain from mentioning the gospel at all. Think of the world around us. We've seen so many advancements in, in technology. Education and academia are heralded as great achievements. You know, maybe it's too easy to get caught up in the thinking that the gospel is just too simple. It's too outdated. It, it's worked for my grandparents' generations, but the world's changing, so we don't share it with others. Or we try and make it look more appealing by twisting in it and making it sound more attractive. Or we could think about the political or the social climate that's in our country right now. You know, there's a rise in hostility in race relations. And I've seen that there's an ever-increasing charge that the gospel is racist. People look at the abuses of minorities in our country and many times in what looks like to be the name of Christ and associate the gospel with colonialism or white supremacy. So we shy away from it because we don't want to be labeled as such. You know, I think about my own life. I was saved when I was 19. I married Aaron when I was 21. I can honestly say that I would have never shared the gospel with her before we started dating. I, I may have wanted to, but I put my want to date her before that. What if sharing the gospel with her made her think that I was weird? You know, what if she turned me down because of my witness for Christ? Now, I don't think she would have done that, but I let that stop me. And yet we're called to share the gospel with those around us. And we shy away from doing so because we're often ashamed of it. And it's not necessarily that we don't believe it or that we don't know it, but we choose our comfort over proclaiming it. We choose to avoid conflict instead of speaking truth. And this week as I was preparing, I was thinking about this time of the year and how we celebrate the recovery of the true gospel. We remember the posting of the 95 Thesis by Martin Luther. We spend time reading and thinking about the Reformers. And you know, I would love to think that I would have been among them if I would have lived at that time. You know, standing strong in the faith, fighting for the gospel. 
But let's take Martin Luther for an example. By stating and writing the things he did, he put a target on his back. Now, don't get me wrong, there were people who were all in for a reformation. And when you read history, some of their motives were good, but some of their motives were political, and some of their motives were spiteful. But Martin Luther had trouble looming. He faced excommunication. He probably feared for his life, but something gripped him. Something convicted him of his position. And I think what gripped him the most was what he saw in Romans 1.17. This is a verse that he almost obsessed over, but was eventually used by God to convert Martin Luther. So let's look at Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, and see exactly what these verses said and what exactly stirred Martin Luther's soul. What did he see that the Apostle Paul wrote right here that convicted him of his position? So we're going to look at Romans chapter 1. We're going to be primarily in verses 16 and 17, but I'm going to start reading at verse 15 to get a little bit of context. Verse 15 says, So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also, to you also who are in Rome, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now when we look at Romans 1, 16 and 17, we see Paul setting up the theme of the whole book of Romans. Now, These verses are not like what we think about in 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul says, um, you know, the message I delivered to you was that Christ died according, according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that He appeared to Cephas, then the twelve, and then to the 500 brothers. We know Paul expounds upon the Gospel in the book of Romans, but we see in these two verses that he shows us what the gospel consists of. And we see that the Apostle Paul is unashamed of the gospel. When we think of Paul, we know that he had a past. He persecuted the church. He lived in a time, and I'm sure Martin Luther uh, identified with this, where his faith in the proclamation of the gospel brought danger. Uh, He knew the thoughts. He knew the teachings of God in the world around him by others. He knew people would think he was crazy. He knew people saw Christians as undesirables, yet he was unashamed of the gospel. And we know this not because he just says, I'm unashamed of the gospel, but because in verse 15 we see that he was eager to preach the gospel. You know, when we're unashamed of the gospel, it produces an eagerness in us to preach the gospel to those around us. But why was Paul so convinced of this gospel message? Where did he get his confidence from to proclaim the gospel to the people around him? You know, was this a special quality just for Paul, just for Martin Luther? Or can we have this confidence now? So today we're going to look at two reasons why we should not be ashamed of the gospel. Two reasons we can be unashamed of the gospel. The first reason is 
we should not be ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God. We should not be ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God. Let's read verse 16 again. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul tells us that the gospel is the power of God. And what I want to establish right off the bat is this stands in total opposition to the power of man. I want us to flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we're going to look at a few verses in here. So if you want to just keep your place marked in Romans, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. It says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You know, the gospel flies in the face of human logic. I mean, think about it. While the world around us has changed a lot since Paul penned this, it really hasn't changed a lot, has it? To the world, the gospel is foolish. It's not, it's not scientific enough. It's not philosophical enough. It doesn't make any sense. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We know it's true. We've experienced it. We are experiencing it. We've seen the evidence of the gospel working in our lives. And therefore, we are to be unashamed of it. Then if we flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we're going to look at the first five verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, starting at verse 1, it says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of the power, so that your faith, not, faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The gospel flies in the face of human achievement. How often have we tried or seen others try to make the gospel attractive? Um, maybe... We leave out key words like repentance. Or maybe we want to sound more intelligent so we can impress someone with how much knowledge we have of God. I think out of the, you know, one of the biggest reasons that we don't share the gospel is because we're scared that we're going to mess it up. We're not going to say the right thing. But we see that the gospel is the power of God, not us. We're not the power of God. But we... You know, people aren't saved because we shared the gospel eloquently enough. People aren't saved because we said the exact right thing. Paul said here that he didn't want their faith to rest in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. So we're not relying on ourselves for the conversion of others. We simply proclaim it because we know that it is the power of God that brings salvation. So we can't reason our way to God. We can't work our way to God. We can't flatter others 
into a right relationship with God. Left to ourselves, we are in trouble and we're hopeless. We need God to intervene, and that's what he's done. We see the fact that he has intervened in the statement, the gospel is the power for salvation to everyone who believes. If you're still in 1 Corinthians, you can look at chapter 1, verse 21. It says, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So what we see is that the gospel is totally sufficient. The simplistic message of the gospel that the world thinks is foolish, God uses as his power for the regenerating of broken people and bondage to sin. And it's sufficient in the fact that it is a complete gospel. And we'll look more at this a little later. But this gospel saves us and it keeps us from beginning to end. You know, God's chosen to use this message of the gospel to save those who would believe it. We're going to flip one more time to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. And we're going to be starting at verse 13 to see what Paul says about the gospel. Romans chapter 10, starting at verse 13. It says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? This is what God uses to save people. This is the message that the world needs to hear. And the good thing about it is this message is what God has done. This is what the gospel is. What God has done and what is announced in the message of the gospel is what saves us. You know, the power consists of the fact that, you know, like I said, it's not what we've done. It doesn't announce what we need to do. It announces what God has done so that we may be saved. God is the author of salvation. And the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. And it goes on to say a little phrase at the end, first to the Jew and also the Greek. I want us to look at that passage real quick, because there's a few thought camps on this, on this passage, and they both hold weight um, to what Paul is saying here. They both state true things. Uh, the first thought camp is, this is true in the terms of the history of redemption. You know, God chose Israel as the witness nation. Israel had distinctive privileges. And then we see Christ come and his ministry was to the Jews first. You know, it would be through Israel that salvation would come to the Gentiles, to the rest of the world. So that holds true. That first thought camp is true. But there's another, another thought camp on this. It says... This was also a ministry pattern of the Apostle Paul. 
when he would go into a city, he would begin by preaching and expounding on the scriptures in the synagogues whenever he could. He would go into these synagogues and he would preach how Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. But I think when we're looking at this verse, we see something else that Paul is doing. We see a distinction that he is making, another true statement that he is making. If you look back up to Romans 1, chapter, chapter 1, verse 14, he says, I'm, a, I'm under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. What Paul is doing here is he is making a cultural distinction in this verse. He separates the Greeks and the barbarians. The Greeks were considered the, the cultured and the wise, and the bar barbarians were the uncultured, foolish people of the ancient world. So we see this cultural divide. And then Paul comes back in verse 16, and we see that he is setting a religious distinction, a religious divide between the Jews and the Greeks. Now, when we say Greeks here, we can know that Paul is probably talking about the Gentiles in general. These were known for their idol-worshiping tendencies, their idol-worshiping religion. So he's making this religious distinction. And what Paul is doing by making these distinctions is he is saying that no matter who you are, Greek, barbarian, Jew, or Gentile, there is only one way to salvation. There is only one way, one gate to enter into eternal life, and that is through Christ. And that's why we are commanded to take the gospel to those around us. You know, people around us need to hear the gospel. Not only are we commanded by God to do this, to take the gospel, but we should be compelled to do so because of the grace that God has shown us through the gospel. So we've seen that the gospel is the power of God for salvation, that this is the message that God has chose to save the lost of the world. But how is the gospel the power of God for salvation for all those who believe? Why is the gospel sufficient for the salvation of those who believe? The second reason we can be ashamed of the gospel is the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. We should not be ashamed of the gospel because it reveals the righteousness of God. Let's look back at verse 17. Romans chapter 1, verse 17. It says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. First of all, I want us to look at what righteousness is. In my study, and the best definition of righteousness that I have found was that it is a conformity to a standard. Righteousness is a conformity to a standard. And as I was studying this, I learned that it shows us a picture of a marketplace. If a person wanted to purchase a measure of grain, they would go up to the person who was selling it, inform them that they wanted to buy a measure of grain, and the merchant would push his scales forward. 
And then he would pour into one side of the sea a measure of grain, and the scales would tip. And then he would take a stone that weighed the same as one measure and add it to the other side. And as he added it, the scales would start to get closer to balance. And he would either add to the, gra- to the measure of grain or take away until it was, till the scale was perfectly even, until it was in perfect conformity. So here's the bad news for us when it comes to righteousness. And it's laid out in verse 18, going to chapter 3, verse 20. We are being measured in our righteousness against God himself. The scales are uneven. There's no conformity to the standard that God has set for our lives. Every human being is guilty before God. Every mouth is stopped and the whole world will be held accountable to God. And that's what Paul is laying out in these first three chapters of Romans. He is laying out his case against humanity. Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, every single person is guilty before God. And this is where Martin Luther had a problem. He looked at the righteousness of God in this verse and he saw something that he could never live up to. He saw God expecting a life from us that we could never live and because of that, Martin Luther hated God. However, God used this same verse to open the eyes of Luther. I want us to flip over to Romans chapter 3. We're going to see what this verse is telling us. What, what Martin Luther finally saw. We're going to look at Romans chapter 3, starting at verse 21. And we're going to read through verse 26. Romans chapter 3, starting at verse 21, it says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. So we see Paul giving us the doctrine of justification. We have sinned. We have shattered the standard of God. When it comes to the standard, when we look at the Ten Commandments, we have utterly failed. But Christ came, and He lived the law perfectly. He lived a sinless life. He was crucified and he was buried and he raised on the third day. And those who put their faith in him receive as a gift the righteousness of God. God takes Christ's righteousness and imputes it to us when we put our faith in him. 
You know, our righteousness is filthy rags. It's worthless. But now we are declared righteous because of Christ. One of the most important things that we see in the doctrine of justification that I don't believe is preached in most pulpits is that we are saved by the life and the death of Jesus. If Jesus would have just came and died for our sins, died for our forgiveness, on the scale we would just be back to zero. We would still be far from conformity with God. We would still not be righteous enough to be in right standing with God. If Christ wouldn't have lived a righteous life, there would be no righteousness to impute to us, and we would be short of being right with God. Yet Christ did live a perfect, righteous life, and those who put their faith in him received this imputed righteousness of Christ. Because of the righteous life of Christ and his work on the cross, we can now be declared righteous and just before God. The scales are now balanced because Christ became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. So so we see in verse 17, it's not only what God is and what God has, but this righteousness is what God gives. You know, the righteousness of God that is imputed on behalf of those who put their faith in Christ is fully consistent with the personal righteousness of God. God is just, and He is a righteous judge. And now through the death of His Son, where we see justice for sin served in the lives of those who put their trust in Him, He declares those who put their faith in Christ righteous. And this is what Martin Luther saw that changed how he viewed God. Nothing we can do to obtain this righteousness. It's a gift of God. And it's amazing that what God, in terms of righteousness, He gives through the gospel. Christ's life and death secures this righteousness on behalf of those who put their faith in Him. So we see God's righteousness revealed. Not only God being righteous himself, but how man can be made righteous. How man can be in a right relationship with God. And we see that this righteousness is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now these three faiths point us to something important. The first faith is receiving of this righteousness by faith. This is conversion. This is when we first believe. The second faith is an ongoing life of faith. The one who believes will continue to live a life of faith. And how do we know this? Because it says the righteous will live by faith. It doesn't stop at the beginning faith, but the one who truly believes will live with a daily faith. 
They will continue to grow in grace. They will continue to grow in the knowledge of Jesus, in the knowledge of God. So it's, you know, it's prevalent, especially in the South, that there's this teaching, you can have this beginning faith and nothing else. We live in a culture that says you can walk an aisle. You can accept Christ. You, you can even get baptized and join a church. And that's all there is to it. But we know that Jesus is the author and the perfecter or the finisher of faith. Those who are truly saved are going to continue in this faith. They're going to continue to live by this faith. They're going to continue to grow in this faith. And if you remember this statement that the righteous shall live by faith, we saw this in Habakkuk 2 a couple of weeks ago. And this is important that we see this, that Paul is doing something here. He's not only showing us that he knows the Old Testament, but he's showing us that this isn't a new teaching. He's showing that this teaching has always been that those who come by faith, they're going to live a life by faith. Those who are righteous, those who are justified, those who are, have been declared in a right standing with God, they're going to live a life of faith. So this is not a new teaching. Those who truly believe are going to, throughout their whole lives, continue to believe. The righteous man by faith has believed in Jesus and he's received the righteousness of God in Christ. So not only does he have this positional righteousness, he's been declared righteous. He's in right standing with God. And this comes through justification, but he is going to live an act of faith. He's going to pursue righteousness. He's going to practice righteousness. The, the man or the woman who has this righteousness will live a life of faith all the way until their last moment on this earth. They're going to continue to pursue Christ's likeness. They're going to pursue Christ's righteousness. We've been imputed the righteousness of Christ, but we also should pursue it. We should also seek after it to become more like Christ. It's going to be a life that pursues to look like Him. You know, if that's not the case, if we don't see the fruit of sanctification in our lives, if we don't see the fruit of pursuing righteousness in our lives, if we don't see the, the want to grow in this righteousness, then it may be because the root of justification is probably not there. If justification is real in our lives and it's true in our lives and it has taken root in our lives through the gospel, it's going to change the way we live. It's going to change our pursuit in life. So what does this mean for our life? You know, we've looked at two reasons we can be unashamed of the gospel. One is the power of God. And two, it reveals the righteousness of God. So, so what does that mean? How does this apply to us? How do these truths help us to be 
unashamed of the gospel. Maybe if you aren't a believer here, maybe you're like Martin Luther and you see this righteousness of God that that you can't live up to. You know the scales are tipped. Maybe Maybe you thought you were a believer. You may have walked the aisle. You may have been baptized, but there's not an act of faith in your life. There's not this pursuit of righteousness that you are living by daily. Don't get me wrong. This is not like legalism. You have to do this, but the gospel has changed us in such a way. It has freed us from the bondage of sin so that we can pursue this righteousness. But maybe you don't see that. Maybe nothing's changed in your life. Maybe you've You've never really understood the gospel until now that Jesus lived and died for us to secure a righteousness, his righteousness that could be imputed for, to us. We, he died for the forgiveness of sins and to give us a righteousness to be in right standing with God. Maybe you've never understood that. Today is the day to repent and believe the gospel. No, don't let the wisdom of the world keep you from knowing this righteousness of God. Don't let the gospel sounding foolish, sounding simplistic, sounding outdated keep you from coming. You know, maybe you are a believer this morning, but you struggle with sharing the gospel. Maybe it's because you don't like confrontation. Um, Maybe you just value your comfort, I challenge you this morning to just reflect on the gospel. Study the gospel. You know, I think oftentimes we we don't really study the gospel or, or reflect on it. It's one of those things that, that we think we know. We, we have a good grasp on it. We can share it. We, we can spit it off like that because we've heard it our whole lives. And we let that stop us from a continual study of the gospel. But you know, we'll never know the depths. We'll never know the wonder, the awe that this gospel contains in this lifetime. So let the gospel penetrate your heart again. When when we love the gospel, that's coming from reflecting on it, reading about it, studying it, singing it speaking it to each other. And I think this is something that Redeemer does well. And I want you to continue to um, be encouraged by this, that this church is gospel-focused. You see it in the singing. You see it in the praying. You see it in the reading of Scripture. You see it in the preaching. You guys talk about the gospel among each other. I remember... After the first few times we have visited here, I told Phil, I've never seen so bad, so, some group of believers so passionate about the gospel, so passionate about the word of God. I was like, I hear it in their conversations. I see it in the singing. I see it throughout the whole service. So be encouraged by that and continue to practice that because this faith is contagious among God's people. Encouraging each other with the gospel will only encourage each other to take the gospel to the community around us.
And lastly, preach the gospel. You know, everybody in here has somebody they come into contact with that needs the gospel. I mean, all you have to do is look around. The world desperately needs Christ. The world desperately needs the gospel. And if we know that the gospel is the power of salvation, if we know that God uses this simple message of Christ to save those who are lost, if, if what he's done, you know, if, if it's his power, if it's what he's done, if it's what the gospel proclaims, we should be quick to share that. And I can say that I'm in this boat this morning that I, I simply don't share the gospel like I should. You know, if that's you as well, me in repenting of that. You know, let the gospel, the truth of the gospel, just penetrate your heart. You know, this is the means by which people are saved. So let us take it to the world around us. When we see the desperate need of the gospel, the simple saving message of the gospel must compel us to share it with others. So what does the power of God word believer look, look like? If you flip over to Romans chapter 8, we see what the gospel working in the life of a believer looks like. We're going to start reading in Romans chapter 8, verse 28 Romans chapter 8 verse 28 it says and we know that the that for those who love God all things work together for the good for those who are called according to his for those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is what the gospel working in the life of a believer looks like. God is gathering a people for himself. And he's using the gospel to do that. He's using the preaching of the gospel together his people. He reveals his righteousness through the preaching of the gospel. And what he requires as far as righteousness, he gives as a gift to those who believe the gospel. And we see that those whom he predestined, those are the ones he will see all the way to the finish. He loses none. Paul saw the power of God through the gospel. Martin Luther saw the power of God through the gospel. Church, look around you. This room is full of people who have been saved by the grace of God, and they testify to the working of the power of the gospel. So don't be ashamed of the gospel. Be encouraged by it. Don't grow weary in sharing the gospel. God is still using it. With the problems seeming to increase around us, with the social unrest, the political unrest. Now let us stand firm in the faith and be quick to proclaim the gospel, for it's the hope that the lost world needs.